Watch for deer. They're watching you. Watch for deer. Precogs, one and all, stigmata maps form on their white bellies. Mornings, they float up your windows, hiss static and jingles, while you can't keep your hands off of yourself. Watch for deer. Have you seen them sleeping, gone all to fog? Their spiked spores infect the oaks and shine in a lichen. By the time you exhale, you'll wonder what was wearing their red hides. Watch for deer. We all saw the video from the body farm. Watch for deer. Watch for deer. Watch for deer. I'm out here in the woods with Elsie, my daughter, and she just spotted a deer that is um, pretty far away. It's it's moved further away, and I can't see it anymore. Can you, Else? No. No? Oh, I just saw it. There it is. She's moving her head and flicking her tail, so now I can see her. When she stands still, she just looks like part of a tree. The sun is hitting her and hitting the trees, and she's exactly the same color. And she's definitely watching us. Now she's moving off again and kind of running across the slope. She stop to look at us again, check on us. Step forward a little bit. She's got her ears up. I'm saying she, but I don't really know. Doesn't seem like a real big one, really small. Maybe a young yearling or less. It's March right now, so they wouldn't be quite a year old. It'd be like. because the sun is up there behind the deer. Oh, several, wow, leaps. Check so that out, oh my gosh. They go so high. Just bouncing right over those trees. It's like watching gymnastics in the Olympics or something. It's just like, what? What did that animal just do? Oh, that is so cool. It just, I don't know why it went that direction. It just went across the hillside, boing, 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 and then turned and went up, and now we can't see it anymore. Yeah. Ready? Okay. This is If You See a Deer. I'm Erica Hauser. In this final episode, Doing, Tyler Carter and I are still thinking and talking about all the aspects of the human relationship with deer we've already looked at and that I investigated in my book, The Age of Deer. But we're also asking about something a little broader. How can we get close to deer? What does it mean to be a person in our world who's spending time with a wild animal through art or poetry or something more physical? Is it possible to have a direct experience with an animal like deer that in some ways is so similar to us and in other ways so utterly different?
that there's a gap between thinking, talking about deer and, and, and the deer themselves, or there's a gap between the myths about the deers and our sort of real world experiences mm -hmm. with them, and just like, mm -hmm. there's some like thing that I'm trying to understand with this that is not about the deer, but it's about how our regard for the deer through various tropes, stories, narratives, um, arguments, whatever, how those things are kind of all we have and there's something kind of unsatisfying about that mm. for me. Mm -hmm. And But at the same time, that dissatisfaction with not being close enough, with not actually being with the thing, like is sort of what pushes forward some of my interest in it, uh -huh. if, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's a sense of longing yeah. for, for, you know, some kind of proximity or directness yes. that is very, very difficult to actually find. I went looking for writing and art about deer when I was researching my book, and I found a lot, some of which can be heard throughout this podcast. One that came to me when I wasn't even looking for it was the work of a young artist named Madison Creech. I'd been researching what happens when deer collide with cars, which is a major problem. A million drivers in America hit deer every year. And I'd been talking with some folks who study how to prevent these crashes here in Virginia. They work for the Virginia Department of Transportation, and one of their projects is a deer composting system. It takes the bodies of roadkill deer and breaks them down into soil instead of having to throw them into a landfill. Anyway, after I learned about this, one of the scientists told me that a textile artist had also visited the compost system and had actually made some pieces based on what she saw. That was Madison. So I ended up visiting her in Wilmington, North Carolina, where she now teaches at UNCW, and seeing her work in person and writing about that in the book. She told me that animals have been part of her art practice for a long time, but at one point she had started to feel a certain dissatisfaction with just drawing animals. I feel like there's this distance from an animal when you're drawing an animal because you're not, I'm like, I'm never looking at an actual animal. I'm looking at reference images. She thought taxidermy might be a way to get closer to real animals, but she tried it out and it wasn't for her. She felt saddened and also kind of disgusted by it. Then she started to think about roadkill. I grew up in, in Nebraska and I feel like I've had a lot of memories because there's tons of deer in, in Nebraska. There's tons of deer in North Carolina. It, it's something that happens often and almost to a, like a lot of, you know somebody that's hit, a, hit an animal with, with their car. She herself hit a deer as a young driver in Nebraska. There's other folks in the car and it, and it was just shocking. And I remember crying immediately. But like the deer was long gone. I guess it's like what's left over of that interaction. Like, yes, there's like damage to the car, but then there's this body that's left over and you can look at it for a really long time. When she discovered the Virginia deer compost system, she went to visit. I feel like that experience um, was not what I was expecting it to be because um, 
we, you know, we like met up at like, I think it was like a McDonald's or Hardee's because this like compost system is like a little bit out of the way, hard to find. Um, and we drove there and I'm like, this is a stranger. I'm driving somewhere where bodies are composted. Cool. Um, and I got there and it was just so clean and like organized. And then when you get to the area that there is absolutely, you know, like it's a fully composted, it's been sitting there for a while, it just sort of smells like dirt. It feels so like earthy. And like, I remember kind of like just like crawling up there and like looking over and like you see like little bits of bone, but for the most part, it's just like this like pile of dirt. She was struck by the simplicity of the system. It's just animals, wood chips and compressed air and it can turn bodies into finished compost in about a month. She was fascinated by the in-between state of the deer in the bins, like they were on this journey traveling along a spectrum between carcass and soil. And there was something else that stuck with her. Then there's also this sort of like this heat that's kind of coming out, and the heat is being produced by that energy exchange of these bodies being transformed into dirt. But as somebody who's like looking at it and experience it, it, it's, you know, you see this steam cloud come out of something that used to be a body or that is like sort of transforming into not being a body. And it, I feel like I sort of think about that as like this like final breath or like this exhale um, or a, possibly a soul like leaving the body. She took lots of photos there, and eventually these became the source for a large textile piece called Compost Toile, which I saw when we visited. We had a lot of fun talking about all this, and a couple of months later, she told me that she had started making some more work about deer and roadkill for a show she was having at her university. There was a piece that looked like a picnic blanket with images of roadkill on it. There was a woven textile that was draped over a taxidermy form of a fawn. And Madison went back to the deer compost site and got some actual compost and brought that right into the gallery. I wanted to give the the visitors of the exhibition a look at that compost because it's it looks like dirt, but there are little pieces and references to the animal, like a rib bone or like a little teeny like dried out, like mummified looking skin that has some like hair on it. Like there's still that presence. It's never like fully gone, um, even though like I scooped from the compost bin that's just been sitting there for like, I don't know, 20 months. She even played a video in the gallery of maggots working their way through the deer bodies. She thought of them as tiny, unpaid workers doing an essential job. And people were really sort of struck by, like, how cute they are. And I think it's because I was able to show them these maggots really close up without um, without the smell and, like, without the, like, the rest of it. Like, they're just like, ah, oh, these cute little, like, bugs, like, devouring this, like, deer skin. And she asked me if I'd contribute some text to a wall piece that would divide the gallery into a light zone representing the human world and an earthy dark zone, the animal world. The text was on two sides of a pylon, one side addressed to people, the other to deer. And so when you get close to it, it was really hard to read, but as you backed away, then it became clearer and clearer. The text was set in a font designed by Benjamin Blazy, a really wild, punky-looking typeface with spines coming out of the letters. The closer you got to it, 
the harder it was to read. Madison saw that as a parallel to something that's been on her mind for a while. Because I feel like that is like this thing that I think that I've been like struggling with ever since I started making work about animals. Like the closer you get to it, it's dead, you know? That's like how you can observe it if you're close to it. Um, and so there's sort of like um, misunder like there you can't understand the whole thing because you're so you're so close and your presence being there is either pushing the animal away or like flattening it. going. Your bed is dark and protected. You can curl on the ground, but you like to eat what likes the sun. You have your paths more narrow than your body that drape themselves down over banks and find gaps between trees, spilling you into the light. To browse, to sniff and listen. A big shape of paths, like veins or branches. The places they touch. Some dangers make a snap. Some make a drone that never fully stops. What did your mother teach you? Plants you can eat? Where to dash or hesitate? How do you calculate the value of food? The necessity of cover? The safer places have less to eat. You are adapting, but you may not get there fast enough. You used to be one of the fastest animals. Your cells are your own for now. Your cells may go into a waiting place and come out beautiful and dark. Your cells may help plants grow beside the road. Your cells may go under cover of landfill, make methane be held in perpetuity. Whose cells? You are adapting to something very big with so many arms. You teach your babies, but the home range can change. The orange machines show up. Adaptation is by generation, by the day by the minute. Hooves on dirt, on gravel, on pavement. Feeling it out. A nose picking up scents, acorn, beer can, exhaust, a carcass and some vultures. Remains are a swirl of change. Young tree of heaven with leaves you love. Have you seen a sister get hit, a grandmother get hit? We all travel with family. Have you seen what happens next? Being touched with force. They keep moving. It's a lonely way to go.
think of that George Oppen poem song, yeah, uh-huh. which having known that poem for a long time, like I think of that as not a dear poem, but as a poem about bringing attention to the sort of aliveness of uh, words on a page or the fact that we give those words on a page life. And so in that, in that sense, my interpretation of that poem, the, the, the small nouns, the deer startling and staring out from the page, to me is sort of a microcosm of, of what it is that we're kind of doing here in a sense is that we're not with the deer, the deer are not speaking for themselves because I'm certain they would not make a podcast if they could speak for themselves. <laughs> but um, that on the page in that poem, the deer are just are, are a word, they're a noun. And like mm-hmm. as we're regarding them, as we're talking about deer, there are no deer, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Um, we came here hoping to see some, but we also knew it would be unlikely. Right. And all we know is they're probably here somewhere, but we can't see them. But yeah, they're not here, and we make them real by sort of invoking them or, or reading, reading them, right? Mm-hmm. Reading our imagination of them or an image of them or a story of mm-hmm. them, right? The phrase in this poem from which I intend to name a next collection, the phrase, this in which song. In the small beauty of the forest, the wild deer bedding down, that they are there, their eyes, effortless, the soft lips, nuzzle on the alien small teeth, tear at the grass, the roots of it dangle from their mouths, scattering earth in the strange woods, they who are there, their paths, nibble through the fields, the leaves that shade them, Hang in the distances of sun, the small nouns, crying faith, in this in which the wild deer startle and stare out. George Oppen poem, it gives us like a moment where like there's a, you know, the way that contemporary poetry sort of creates a, I don't know, pushes you back in, creates an opening, a satori, an an absence of language or some sort of profundity that you encounter through the reading of it. Um, But like that's something that's real, that makes us feel something, right? And so like even in just in that little that little space of the page, Start encountering that, and having that experience out. with it, um, to me seems like a pretty good simulation for a, maybe a much longer process of, say, I don't know, if we want to take deer hunting, right, where you have this, like, apparently very magical 15 seconds of lining the deer up in your sights um, that you want to memorialize for the rest of your life. The roots of it dangle from their mouths. part of 
what I love about reading poems and sometimes writing poems is allowing a gap or working in a gap or having things happen within a gap. There's an opening, there's a place where two things do not smoothly connect to each other in, in that kind of electric field. the soft lips, nuzzle on the alien's small teeth, tear at the grass, the roots of it dangle from their mouths, scattering earth in the strange woods, they who are there. That's kind of the way we relate to each other and as people and to many things in, in life is sort of through these transmissions across gaps, you know, relating to an animal, relating to a person. And also, you know, reading a poem is a sort of like heightened space, like you go into it, and I think you were getting at this, but you go into it with like a heightened awareness compared with a lot of other things you sure. might be doing that day. Sure. Right? Yeah. And I sure. think that, you know, looking at animals or being around animals is kind of that way too. They who are there, their paths, nibble through the fields, the leaves that shade them, hang in the distances of sun. think that just because there's an artifact of an animal's body present somewhere you know in someone's home or whatever or outside that means that they're strictly a trophy hunter I think it's so much more complex than that this is Christy Green she's in my book too in the chapters on hunting I've never met Christy in person but I encountered her at an online reading and knew I wanted to talk to her and since then we've become friends She's one of those people who's hard to summarize. I really don't know anyone else like her. She's a hunter, she's a writer, a landscape architect and artist, a gardener, and from what I gather, a really good cook. She lives in New Mexico and grew up in Alaska, and last summer she made an installation in an art gallery in Albuquerque that involved the skeleton and hide of an elk she'd killed. She also served meat from that elk to gallery patrons. She's a pretty unusual woman. The men in her family hunted when she was growing up, and she worked at a hunting lodge in Alaska during college. And when it came time for hunting season, the owner of the lodge said, well, we really need you to flesh hides. So I was a part of fleshing, preparing all the hides, you know, the bear and the moose caribou and so on. But again, it wasn't um, the domain of women. When she was 40, she decided to learn how to hunt. By that time, she was already used to eating food she'd grown. So it was, it was about trying to um, expand my wherewithal um, to get my own food and to have that be this um, locally harvested food. So domestic vegetables from the garden and then um, wild game from the land. This is one of those pathways that a lot of people have gone down. 
In a way, Josh Barnwell from our last episode is on that pathway too, except that he keeps finding deer on the road and doesn't really need to hunt. My husband John is learning to hunt too, and again, that grows directly out of our years of gardening and raising chickens. It's not about trophies, it's a locavore thing. But in the dozen or so years since Christy started hunting, she seems to have integrated it into her life not only on the level of food, but also in art making, writing, and a kind of deep inquiry into the meaning of human life. Like Josh, she uses the word intimacy. It's so much bigger than bringing home meat, you know. And when I am fortunate enough to bring meat home, I I love every part of it because then I get these days and weeks ahead of being intimate with that animal in a completely different way after the killing. Now, I don't even know how I lived without the practice before. I don't mean the killing part of it. And I don't mean the meat part of it as much, but the actual practice and experience of the hunt. I asked Christy about that word practice. I had never heard anybody use the word practice to describe hunting. But the thing that happened for me during the whole process was totally blowing open my relationship to animals and to my own self. She learned from her then-husband, but now she hunts alone. The more I really felt it as um, some other kind of practice for my own connection to place, to the animals, but also to myself, because it was like that was the only place I got to be an animal. When I could be out there with the animals, then I could operate in a way, like on a, a sensory, sensual way, not, not from the brain necessarily. And it was so nice because I could leave the whole, what I call the straight line world, behind. Christy brings home the meat from these animals, of course, but she also does things with other parts. I'm not sure how to summarize those other uses, and in a way, neither is she. Sometimes it might be more like art. Actually, one of her newest projects is designing fabrics based on the photos of animals she takes when hunting. And sometimes it's more like a spiritual act or just living with the animals. And Olivia, my daughter, she's 18 now, but... She wouldn't want to have friends over. She's like, God, Mom, you've got all these dead animals everywhere. Could you please get this out of the house? Like, because there are turkey feet outside. There's an elk neck outside. She takes beautiful photos of the animal parts and puts some of them out in her yard in altars or on platforms that allow them to break down with offerings around them. It's all pretty different from the things she experienced as a young person working and living around a more trophy-oriented hunting culture. You know, everybody would get back to deer camp and the, and the deer would be hung by their necks, you know, in a line along the cabin. And it just horrified me. We'd get home, the end of the day, it's dark, and everybody's, like you're saying, comparing their does and bucks. Right. And one I, I was I had there was a child that was there and he was probably 10 and he took this stick and he kept poking this one 
deer, the body of the deer poking it. And I just was mortified. And to me, that um, action is the expression of separateness, the belief of being separate. So if I think that deer is separate from me, is in some way an object, and I'm the human, it's like a hierarchy or something of belief around otherness. Just circling back to the conversation about practice or what a hunting practice is, is my opportunity to remember that I am not separate. Josh Barnwell said something similar to us about how humans are the only animals who draw a line between ourselves and nature. If there's something in here about honoring versus not honoring an animal, displaying or not displaying reverence, it's as much about our tendency to polarize things as anything else. If we really listen to what Dale Wenger, the taxidermist, and Josh and Christy are saying, we find a lot of connections among their different ways and practices that make it seem way too easy to put trophy hunting on one side and some kind of mindful or spiritual hunting on the other side. That's just too simple. For Christy, there's a kind of never-ending ethical inquiry with every hunt, every shot, every use of an animal part, and she is careful not to claim some kind of moral high ground for her own responses or her own choices. I'm just completely in awe of how brilliantly designed they are and how exquisitely beautiful inside and out. So I'm greedy in a way because I want to see them all the time, all over their their bodies. It's And I don't know if that's about, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's about having a trophy, but maybe that's what people who have, quote, trophies would say, too. They want to see the beauty of the animals. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. She told us a story about hosting a dinner where she served venison. The buck from the deer, I put his head on the table that night, and we were having, we were eating him, and the one guest said, I can't meet my meat. <laughs> I can't do that. She wouldn't eat it. You know, okay, that's fine. And... I think because of our lifestyle, we are afforded a particular distance and isolation and level of anonymity. I think proximity and pace, to me, are the biggest things um, that allow and require intimacy. And the kind of intimacy, I don't mean sex, sexuality, I mean what is intimate, which is visceral, and what is in our own bodies. And when you see that in an animal... Um, or a plant and it's dirt, you know, a dirty carrot you're pulling out and you have that relationship with the body, there's a completely different feeling about who we are and what our place is in the world. It starts to make me wonder about those responses we have to animals killed on the road or the way I don't like the smell of the broiler chickens we raise at home when we butcher them. All these responses we feel toward bodies and death How many of these feelings are we born with and how many of them are learned and kept alive by our way of life in which we can pretend to be separate? Paul Shepard, the anthropologist, has a really fascinating passage in his book, The Others, about how people once imagined deities as animals, but slowly over time, the deities took on human form. Along the way, there were many intermediate stages, human-animal composites, human gods riding animals or having animals as their familiars, like the Greek hunting goddess Artemis, often pictured with a sacred deer. 
And one of the stages is humans wearing animal skins. So the question of the sacred can be very much connected to the image of a person's body draped in the skin of an animal. So Christie's fabric project has some very ancient roots in that way. And it's just bringing me so much joy because for as long as I can remember from, my, from when I started hunting out, I've always imagined, I see them, I see that they're, what they're wearing every day, who they are and who they get to be in the world and how their bodies move in their landscape and how their bodies are their expression of adaptation, how their bodies are their tools for propagation. She told us about a garment she's designing that tries to capture some of the movements of the male turkey during mating season. Exactly what Josh had been talking about when he described hunters imitating the turkeys. She says that she also adds parts of animals onto her own clothing sometimes, like a lapel or a waistband. I'm not, I don't want to sell actual body parts. That's just kind of for my own adornment. I don't know if that's selfish, but that's what's happening. I don't know. <laughs> I, I like wearing the animals and I don't want, I don't want to... It's such a contradiction on one hand. I don't want to commodify them, but I am in, in imagery, right, in the fabric. I can't say that anything I'm doing with the animal bodies is what I believe is right. I, I don't think that I'm doing it correctly or I'm the ultimate right way to do it. I, I just am doing what comes through me with the animals in terms of how best to love them. She's also not sure where her hunting practice will ultimately take her. It's probably going to get harder and harder to pull the trigger. <laughs> you know, probably is. I think, um, I think, yeah, I don't know what will happen, but there has been a shift inside around that. It's weird being human. We're the only predator who would question the ethics of killing or whether we can keep on doing it, and the only one who would save the bones to make art with. But then again, that whole tendency we have to say humans are special, we're different from every other species, is kind of an illusion, as both Josh and Christy were saying. My brother talks about this. He's a, he's a fishing guide, you know, and he talks about this too, like someone asking him which way is downstream and they're standing in the river. There's that kind of absolute removal of ourselves from, you know, I don't even like to say nature, we are nature, but, but we act like we're not. I mean, something as simple as that. So I, I think I'm just going so far on the other end of trying to, like I won't even use the word connection. I, I really want what I'll call communion. She sees that communion as a human trait and one that ties us to the web of species rather than setting us apart. But you know, if you look at any of the caves in France or any um, places where there's you know, evidence and artifacts of relationship, there is always something that has to do with an animal. And, and, a, and, a, and it's not just a kill site with bones. A lot of times there's proof of altars and these ways of um, showing reverence. You know, there's the bear jaw with, or whatever. So. I believe that there's something in us, or I'll just speak for myself, there's something, and I'm not trying to say I'm like a prehistoric person who's like, you know, hunter-gatherer cousin directly. I, I know that's not, I'm not trying to claim that, but I do believe there's something beyond explanation that still runs through us as 
as these beings, just like I do believe we are animals. I think we've forgotten that. I had always been very disconnected from the act of hunting before writing my book. But in 2021, as part of my research, I went hunting for the first time, or really, I observed hunting. My brother and an uncle and some of our cousins hunt together every year, and I was able to be there as they killed, or harvested, as people often say, eight deer. All of these were skinned that same evening, and I decided to bring home one of the hides. The following year, I went back and brought home two hides. I've started learning how to tan these hides to make buckskin. Tyler and I talked in my backyard while I was working on my third hide. I was doing the first step of the process, which is to scrape any remaining pieces of flesh off the underside of the skin. I'd made a tool from a used planer blade. That's a woodworking tool, and it's very good for removing the scraps of meat that cling to the skin after it's taken off the deer. At this stage, the hide is heavy with fur and flesh, and it looks a little gory on one side and luxurious and beautiful on the other side. I laid it over a thick piece of PVC pipe and scraped hard, pulling down to peel that flesh away. My chickens were around, eating the scraps. You know, all the fur is still on. It's just like this super thick, yeah. awesome fur. Um, but I'm putting the fur side down so I can work on the flesh side. I always think a deer fur is being really short, but it's yeah, not. Yeah, it's not. It's not short. I mean, some of these hairs are, you know, three inches long. Yeah. So what's your impression here? So, I mean, it's really <laughs> fleshy. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, I was imagining like you had this kind of like an actual deer hide that had already been sort of treated, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, so this, this is, is like... not what I imagined. I mean, this might be a stupid question, but why is the flesh bound to the hide such as it is? I mean, it's just like, but yet you can still take it off. Yeah, right? well, you can see there's, this is fascia. Okay. This white connective tissue that is so strong, and this is like what holds everything together in the body, and you know, in our bodies too. Okay. So there's fascia like holding all our organs in the right place between the muscles and the bone, and uh, yeah, between muscle and skin, which is what I'm working on here but you could see this fascia just like it, it stretches forever yeah doesn't want to break so I have to like really work at it 
I'm wondering if you were finding this disgusting. Ah, uh, um, I mean, initially, yeah, when you open the garbage bag and there's just this kind of like furry, meaty mess. Um, but I could see, I mean, it's just like standing next to this for five minutes now or whatever. Uh -huh. uh, I, it's not as disgusting as it was five minutes ago. Yeah, yeah so, you get used to it. Yeah, you get used to it. I mean, it just seems like you're you're working you're working this thing as if it were you know any other kind of thing you'd work like you're digging a hole or you're mm -hmm. um, you're just putting, yeah putting force into changing the way something is right. As a, as a far of, uh, like honoring honoring the deer, do you feel like that's that's happening right now? I don't know. I mean, I don't know who gets to decide that, right? I could say yes, I could say no, but like, what does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's kind of what I, that's the question. I mean, yeah. it's like if we honor, I'm going to honor my ancestors or whatever, you know? I'll, yeah. I don't know. Light a candle, or uh -huh. I don't know, say say thank you very quietly in my head to them, or something Visit like that. Visit a grave right? or something. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's like a ritual that goes with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, like as people, I think we can imagine that we would like we would like to be honored in that way. Sure. After we're gone. Yes, for sure. But we can't really know that deer would feel that way. I mean, it, it yeah. sounds kind of silly even to say that, so. Yeah, yeah. Every, everything is kind of in our heads in a way, like, well, we believe that this is a form of honoring or we don't believe that. Like, we can't check in with the animal on that. Right, right. But right. I mean, you know, there's this whole body of like mythology that comes out of that kind of belief that, in a sense, there is the idea that on some level the animals have given certain practices to people or they've said, this is how you should treat us so that, you know, we can provide you with food and keep, keep being here and keep providing mm -hmm. for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. But yeah. that's sort of a, you know, it's like, dream time kind of interaction. Normally we don't, I don't think you and I have a lot of conversations about death in general, right? But, but I think it's a lot easier when you're standing here, when I'm standing here in front of this like deer hide, you uh -huh. know, and we're actually dealing with yeah. the flesh of a dead animal, like it, it's more present, right? Yeah. And I, I feel like it's, um, it's less scary too. Yeah. Like I, I just sure. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is what it is, you know, it's skin and it's meat and yes. right. hair and yeah. it's material. Oh, look at that, a little um, buckshot bullet, yeah. bullet, yeah. Wow, let me see that. 
I've never seen that before. Huh. Little fragment. I'm throwing these scraps to the chickens, um, which is just a great treat for them, but also something that's kind of cool about that is that um, in a later step I will be soaking this hide in a solution made of the eggs that they lay. So it's a nice kind of full circle thing about it. Oh, I think I know where I am on this deer now. What is that? The intestines? I think this is testicles penis. That's his penis? I think so. Oh, dang. Wow. Okay. It looks like a, um, I saw that in the bag. It looks like a carrot or like a root, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's not quite what I would have expected, I guess. Yeah. Um, oh. Have you ever? <sighs> yeah. Go ahead. Well, it's kind of stopped me in my tracks, so I've not, this is a new one for me. Where's the testicles? I think it's this. That. Oh, God. Yeah. What are we going to do with that? I don't think I'm going to scrape this part. Okay. Because... Maybe just cut that off. Yeah. I'm yeah, going to get okay. a knife and just go right across. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a male deer. Okay. Now we know. Now we know. It's a buck. It's a buck. You don't necessarily have a plan for what you want to do with those guys. No, not really. I just like the, I like the process and um, I also like being able to do something very concrete with um, the results of those hunting days yeah. with my family. Like yeah. they're the ones who do the killing and the skinning and the butchering and then they you know they've shared some meat with us so I could be part of the cooking process and the eating yeah. process I but see. this is just sort of another plus it's like they'll just burn it if I don't take it mm. well you're get you're getting you're getting there I'm getting there yeah so now I'm to this point where it's like, I would like for it all to look like this, just like yeah. very white. I yeah. know I got everything here. Obviously up here, I didn't get everything. There's some fascia that's left and it's got little bits of whatever on it. Yes. But it becomes much harder <laughs> to get that. And I'm getting kind of tired. About and uh I, according to the book, mm. you don't have to go too crazy at this stage. Just It says, you know, just get the obvious okay. bits. Okay, That's a helpful I, thing. Which I think I have done. Sure. But it's, as I was saying when I started, you kind of get interested in like, yeah, doing yeah, it until yeah, you exactly. can't do it exactly. anymore. Like so. scrubbing it till it's yeah. flawless. Now I'm at that sort of obsessive point, but. Call it. Really? This yeah. is it? I'm gonna stop there because I think if I really 
went to town on this. It's going to take forever and it's yeah. not necessary. And it's kind of nice just to like check out the other side. So this is probably since this deer died in December, this would be the winter coat, mm. which is every hair is hollow. Okay. So it's very insulating. Okay. And they get a whole different coat in the summer that's like a different color and Oh, that's lighter. Color, yeah, it's right? more yeah. reddish. Yep. Okay, yeah. Um and is not the hairs are not hollow, so it's cooler. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, from the beginning, I mean it's cool to see this. Um not just see mm. it, not to see this, but to see you scrape it. Mm. Um yeah. It is different. Um, I feel like seeing the process, being there for the process, mm -hmm. seeing the work, that I've probably never spent so much time with a deer than I have in the last mm -hmm. hour. Yeah. yeah, and when you're looking at the, the fur side like this, it really feels like there's an animal here. Like, it's, you know, I'm just petting it and petting it because it's like, ah. This is so, it's so big. Mm -hmm. It's as big as we are. Mm -hmm. Tyler asked me what had changed for me during the process of writing about deer. I think I thought that I was more, you know, consciously choosing the project as opposed to in that spaceless, timeless kind of realm of just sort of like, oh, this is what's happening. Mm. You know, that it, it just happens or it chooses you or there's... You are called forth. You are called forth, you know, it's... it's <laughs> Like as far as like your own relationship, thinking about it maybe even phenomenologically, mm -hmm. like has that changed? Is that something you've learned about? Yes, I like this question because this, this is really a big part of the answer to the other question of like, what are the unexpected places? So this I did not expect is that now when I do spot a deer in real life it is quite a different experience for me than it was before because first of all I, I do have more understanding of what might be going on you know sort of behaviorally with them or something like that I've gathered a little bit of that kind of knowledge but more importantly I just feel like they have become so much less abstract to me as kind of an idea of a species, you know, this whole species that's just sort of out there and it's part of some system, you know, ecosystem or economic system or tradition, human traditions. You know, I just feel like more lucky to actually be in the same place with a deer and to get the chance to 
see them in person, even though you know they're common and we, we see them a lot. I have a lot more appreciation for the fact that the way history unfolded, they easily could not have been common for us. We could easily right now in 2023 be living in a world with far fewer deer as we are living in a world with very few large animals in general. So I think it's pretty notable that you know, yeah. they're they're around in great numbers. When you said before you feel lucky, this is a thing. Mm -hmm. What did you feel before this project? Well, much more of a sort of like, well, yeah, there they are. There they you know, are. just a taking for granted kind of. You know, yeah. they're a given. Right. Sure. 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 Yeah. Do you feel any uh, more connection with them? I don't, and I don't know what I mean by connection. I mean, I definitely do, but it is hard. You don't know what you mean when you're asking that and I don't really know what I mean when I'm saying yes. Great question. <laughs> great question, great answer. You know, yeah. like, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I feel very self-conscious about saying it. But yes, I do feel more of a connection. So, here's a science question. So what do you do different, if anything? Well, I mean, one thing that's different is that I now sometimes go out looking for them. You know, especially around my house, I will go, you know, get up early sometimes and go out walking and trying to be very quiet and slow and kind of stop often and look around. It's totally different than just taking a stroll or a hike where you're just kind of moving and the point is exercise or it's much more of a, a hunter's way of moving, yeah. though I don't have a weapon with me, but, you know, I just want to see them. But And when you go out with that mindset, every little encounter is really exciting and even if it's just finding a track or hearing a noise way off like oh that that's you know that's something heavy i know that's a deer you know and thinking well the deer probably heard me before i heard the deer so my sound pushed it you know forward and that its sound traveled back to me you know i get excited about those kinds of encounters that don't even involve you know a spotting but mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting I mean yeah that sounds just like hunting right yeah I yeah. mean it's we were talking about longing you know and yeah. desire and sort of like pursuing and trying to get close and yeah. you know yeah 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 This has been If You See a Deer. If you'd like to check out the book that was the seed for this podcast, it's called The Age of Deer, and it's available from Catapult Books in January 2024. Thank you for listening, and if you see a deer, let us know. I finally came upon some deer. It's 9.30 at night, and it looks like they're having some leaves. I can see their silhouettes um, moving across the street. There's a 
acknowledgement of sorts in that they've crossed onto greener pastures or just to avoid uh, the oncoming car. All right, it's done, it's real. I saw some deer, that's it. You've been listening to If You See a Deer. This podcast is written and produced by Erica Hauser and Tyler Carter and edited by Tyler Carter. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our guests were Madison Creech and Christy Green. We heard Mike Sikama reading part of his poem, Watch for Deera, and Erica read text she contributed to an art exhibition by Madison Creech in 2022. The recording of George Oppen reading from his poem, Psalm, is from Penn Sound at University of Pennsylvania. Deer stories contributed by Erica and Amy Peterson. Big thanks to Mary Garner McGee at WTJU-FM in Charlottesville, Virginia, and to the Virginia Audio Collective.